0: a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Coming up later in the hour, we have Sharon Hurd will be in, in discussion with Stephanie and Jen, both from the Canadian Red Cross. But to start today's program, here is Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News.
2: My fellow Americans, tonight with a heart full of gratitude and boundless optimism, I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States.
3: The U.S. officially has its November ticket. For the Democrats, Joe Biden is locked in. And on Thursday, Donald Trump accepted the Republican nomination.
2: This is the most important election in the history of our country. At no time before, have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties. Two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas?
3: The campaign starts in earnest this week, and Trump faces real tests of his leadership, from protests over the police shooting of Jacob Blake to fallout from Hurricane Laura in the South and the devastating impact of COVID-19 in the US. Over 180,000 people have died of coronavirus in the country. Today, I'm joined by two colleagues from our Washington Bureau, correspondent Paul Hunter and senior editor Lindsey Duncombe, to talk about what this all means for Trump's chances at re election. I'm Josh Block. This is FrontBurger. Hello, Paul, and hi, Lindsey. Hey, Josh. Hello. So Thursday night, we saw Trump accepting the nomination on the White House lawn, basically you know, using his office at a campaign stage.
2: Gathered here at our beautiful and majestic White House, we cannot help but marvel at the miracle that is our great American story.
3: And then afterwards, there were fireworks that went off and a cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah played. Lindsay, based on what we saw at the convention, what else is Trump doing that's changing what we usually expect from a U.S. election campaign?
4: Well, in many ways, this is just the continued violation of norms that have happened throughout Donald Trump's presidency that have become so common, you don't even notice it. It wasn't just the fact that they were at the White House. In this convention, there was also a naturalization ceremony making people citizens in the White House on tape played there was a moment where someone was given a pardon as part of this reality show that really was the answer by the republicans to a pandemic convention Hmm. the other unusual thing was that mike pompeo secretary of state delivered a speech from jerusalem
5: i'm speaking to you from beautiful jerusalem looking out over the old city
6: i have a big job
4: uh, something that, again, blurred those lines between the activities of government and political activities that really uh, have a lot of Democrats upset. Uh, but it remains to be seen how much of a
5: difference that makes with uh, the votes that Donald Trump is trying to get. And I think that's the key consideration on the Trump side of things, which is that no one really cares. <laughs> right? <laughs> but most, you know, Jane and Joe voter in America probably can't Explain the Hatch Act, which governs all the things that uh, many of the things that Lindsay just talked about. You know, they talk about outrage fatigue. There's so much stuff to to worry about or to think about with Trump that things like this. And yet, the power of it. I mean, he looked presidential with the White House
3: behind him, right? Well, so uh, last week's convention seemed to really focus on these these two main stories. The first one was this idea of of Trump as an empathetic and a moderate figure. Of course, the other story we heard was a darker story about how Democrats would destroy America. And and I want to start there. You know, all week we heard how anarchists and looters were destroying Democrat-led cities and how a Biden presidency would really make things worse. The speech by former Fox News host Kimberly Guilfoyle comes to mind.
7: Rioters must not be allowed to destroy our cities. Human sex drug traffickers should not be allowed to cross our border. The same socialist policies, which destroyed places like Cuba and Venezuela, must
4: not take root.
3: Paul, what was the strategy there? My
5: view is that the Trump campaign, uh, for a very long time, presumed that the campaign would be about the healthy economy, and that poof, gone with the pandemic. So what else have we got? Um, How about fear?
2: Your vote will decide whether we protect law-abiding Americans or whether we give free reign to violent anarchists and agitators and criminals who threaten our citizens.
5: So paint a picture of the potential for anarchy in the streets, including, by the way, in the suburbs. Uh, paint a picture of the government taking away your guns, Of further down on, on a separate tack, abortion issues and other things that, that the other side will bring, the dirty socialists. But by and large, it's about fear. Let's bring the McCloskeys on, the you know, the couple from St. Louis that brought out guns and pointed them at peaceful demonstrators marching by their place in the suburbs, right, of St. Louis. That is the picture the Trump campaign seems to want voters to think about. When you go into that ballot box again, you gotta make a decision. What kind of America do you want? Do you want one where where rioters and looters, as speaker after speaker put it, are gonna threaten your house? Think about that, forget everything else, it's powerful.
4: President Trump is the law and order president. Now presidential
7: leadership is not guaranteed. It is a choice. This election is a battle for the soul of America. Your choice is clear.
4: Hmm. And that is a tactic that has worked for Republicans previously. You know, you saw it all the way back to Nixon, to, to Reagan. So
6: I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States.
4: The difference with that, though, is those, they weren't incumbents. They were going up against someone from a different party who was in the White House. Donald Trump is saying the country needs fixing, and yet he's been the president for four years. So you will not be safe in Joe Biden's America is the tagline we
2: heard over and over. Joe Biden is not a savior of America's soul. He is the destroyer of America's jobs. And if given the chance, he will be the destroyer of American greatness.
4: The reality is uh, what we're watching play out is happening in Donald Trump's America. However, uh, if you are inclined to to like Donald Trump and to be susceptible to that message of fear and, and safety, it has the potential to be very powerful among voters in key states.
3: And they really painted him as this tolerant and and moderate leader. I mean, Trump's only black cabinet member, Ben Carson, said in his speech that Trump wasn't a racist.
0: They could not be more wrong. Years ago, Jesse Jackson gave Donald Trump an award for the economic opportunities he created for black people. Our president, Donald J. Trump, believes in the people. He is one of us.
3: And you had Ivanka Trump coming out and saying she saw the pain in her father's eyes when he received updates about the pandemic. I mean, it really felt they were making an effort to paint him as an empathetic figure.
4: I want to tell you the story of a president who is fighting for you from dawn to midnight. When the cameras have left, the microphones are off, and the decisions really count.
3: Lindsay, tell me more about that strategy.
4: Well, Particularly with the racial outreach, I think that that's an acknowledgement of the moment where we are in the United States right now. And by bringing out Tim Scott with um, an effective sort of typically establishment, reasonable in many ways sounding speech at the end of the first night, Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the UN, a longtime rising star in the Republican Party. America is not a racist country. This is personal for me. I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. My father wore a turban. My mother wore a sari. Really, the strategy appears to be to give people who have doubts about the accusations about Donald Trump's racism a a sort of an out, a way to not potentially think about that uh, when they are going to cast their ballot. Simultaneously, it's happening with coded language, things that very much feel like racial dog whistles coming from, as uh, Paul mentioned, the McCluskey's sitting in their couch there, too. So there's two things that need to happen if Donald Trump is to get out of the polling hole he's in behind Mm -hmm. Joe Biden. He needs to get that base out to the polls energized volunteers. despite the pandemic they need to vote in key places and he also needs to reach beyond that base so simultaneously there was red meat and then there was the flip side of that which is but donald trump isn't as bad as the democrats are making him out to be
5: no one i mean, being a bit facetious here but no one who voted for hillary clinton last time is going to vote for trump this time so the mm-hmm. the pool of voters Trump has at his disposal are those who got him to the White House in 2016. And that's it, right? The path to victory for Trump, get every last single solitary voter from so-called Trump nation out to the polls vote for me. So what about the ones who have drifted? The so-called soft middle for whom, you know, Joe Biden, you know, he's not offensive. I can, I can, you know, because I've heard that Trump is a misogynist and that he's a racist and I can't really go to the office tomorrow and say that I voted for the guy. But that's where, did you see the crowd that went up on stage? All the women, all the Mm -hmm. people of color. It's like it, it gives permission Mm -hmm. for those people who were kind of looking at Uncle Joe as maybe an inoffensive place to park my vote this time, to say it's okay to go back to Trump.
2: And I say very modestly that I have done more for the African-American community than any president since Abraham Lincoln, our first Republican president, and I have done more in three years for the black community than Joe Biden has done in 47 years.
5: The other thing I'd say is that, you know, I've talked to a number of Republican women, Mm -hmm. and uh, for that matter, black Republican voters, who who say to me, forget the rhetoric. What matters is what he does. Up in the deep south, I've seen racism up close. I know what it is, and it isn't Donald Trump.
1: Look at what he's actually doing. The tweets don't really matter. Definitely uh, decreasing the taxes and and making... Uh, business ownership and and creating more jobs especially lowering the black unemployment that that is huge
5: you know one woman was telling me don't judge me by my body parts that's that doesn't direct how I vote mm-hmm. hmm. what matters is what trump does there, there are no monolithic uh, voting blocks necessarily uh, mm-hmm. for women or for black Americans and and mm-hmm. there, there there are a number of, you know plenty of people who say well look unemployment continued to go down up until the pandemic pandemic sort of changed a lot of things, obviously.
1: Part one of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM, the second part of that program coming up in a moment here on After 9.
0: Throughout your life, the information you need to thrive and survive continually changes. Tune in to 93.1 CFIS-FM Tuesday afternoons at 1 for Senior Moments. Each week, Sharon Hurd and AJ will talk with the movers and the shakers in our community to keep you in the loop with the information you need from the people who know it best. Sponsored by Integers Credit Union and Riverbend Manor, Tuesday afternoons at 1, with a rebroadcast Wednesday nights at 11. Senior Moments, only here on 93.1
6: CFIS-FM. After much deliberation, the Exploration Place Board of Trustees, along with the center's management team, have decided to delay the facility's reopening to next spring. The closure will allow the museum the opportunity to undergo a major renovation, which will enhance the Exploration Place's ability to offer a world-class experience. Meanwhile, items from the gift shop are still available for curbside pickup, and everyone is encouraged to follow their online programming through Facebook and at TheExplorationPlace.com. Hope Air is Canada's only national charity providing free travel
1: and accommodations for Canadians in financial need who must access medical care far from home. Since 1986, Hope Air has provided more than 150,000 travel arrangements, nearly 10,000 in the last 12 months alone. Check out their services and stories, as well as ways to give and get involved through their website, hopeair.ca, and sign up for their national newsletter. Helping Canadians reach vital medical care, Hope Air.
6: Visit them at hopeair.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada showers today, wind from the south at 20, and a high of 17. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 10. For Friday, a mix of sun and cloud, wind becoming southwest 20 in the afternoon, a high of 21 with a high UV index.
0: Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM.
1: And here is part two of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC
3: News. Six million... Americans have contracted COVID-19. Some 182,000 Americans have died from the virus. The United States has been the hardest hit country in the world. How did Trump characterize the pandemic during the convention?
4: As a success, um, which I think might be surprising to those of us who've been watching it all play out. In fact, Larry Kudlow, um, one of the early speeches in the convention, talked about the coronavirus pandemic in the past
6: tense. Hardship and heartbreak were everywhere, but presidential leadership came swiftly and effectively with an extraordinary rescue for health and safety to successfully fight the COVID virus.
4: I mean, there was much hmm. lauding of the, the fact that everyone who needed a ventilator got one, it continued talk about banning travelers, exaggerated language, misleading language about how this administration has handled the coronavirus pandemic. And
2: when the China virus hit, we launched the largest national mobilization since World War II. We developed from scratch the largest and most advanced testing system Anywhere in the world. It, it defies
4: a bit of, of reality, but that's sort of what these things do, and they do it effectively on this stage. You know, if, if you had woke up and hadn't been around and turned on the TV, you'd think that this was the most successful response of any nation, It absolutely applauding what Trump and his his team did.
5: One of the things that I, I just don't understand is the willingness for so many just to want to believe him. And that drives them now. You know, mm-hmm. when after Trump's speech on Thursday, we were walking back from the White House and we walked past one of the exits from the South Lawn and the crowd was kind of streaming out. And we all saw the crowd without the masks, right? Mm-hmm. Sitting shoulder to shoulder. Well, unless, you know, maybe the, I just sort of was walking through a particular blob of people. But as they exited the White House, they all had masks on. And it's like... What, did you have them in your pockets? But you, but, and if that's true, you chose not to wear them when you were sitting in front of Donald Trump. Now, what does that mean? And on camera. And on camera. It's as if they, they don't want to do anything against him, was the message that I took away from that. It's bizarre.
4: Don't you think, Paul, one of the things that struck me in that speech, where largely he read on the teleprompter for more than an hour, was the time when the president turned to the White House and
2: said, What's the name of that building? But I'll say it differently. The fact is, we're here and they're not. We're here and they're not. Us and and them. Yeah,
4: us and them. And that's one of the things that Trump has been so effective at doing. And people who support the president, their identity is wrapped up in it. He's their guy. This is their country. And their country
8: is at stake. He's not afraid to go after um, hard issues.
5: Trump was a voice of freshness. I mean, he was so different than establishment politicians.
7: We stand for the flag. We stand for for security in our country and in the valley. And we stand for everything that our president's
4: doing for us. I remember back uh, when I went to a rally in Minneapolis, I interviewed uh, people who study political psychology. And... One thesis goes, the worse things get, the more people double down on their views, because Mm. to turn around now would mean admitting you were wrong.
3: Well, despite that, I mean, Trump is trailing in the polls by eight points right now behind Biden. He, you know, has a record over the past four years of what a Trump presidency would look like. How likely is it that, you know, you think he could convince enough Americans to give him a shot at another four years in the office? I think,
5: I have long believed that opinions are baked in on this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, That we could have the election tomorrow and it'll be pretty much what we're going to see in November, right? Uh, <laughs> again, didn't we say all that in 2016, right?
3: Right. I look back at the polls <laughs> from 2016, and yeah. in late August, it was, it was Trump trailing Hillary by seven points.
5: Um, we can remind ourselves that we really only have to look at a handful of states, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, but when we talk about Wisconsin, you know, to go back to fear, uh, we see what's been happening there lately, and nobody knows how that will play. And, you know, what comes in October, the old, the old October surprise. I'm of the view that the October surprise came March 10th Hmm. with the pandemic. But it's, you know, I... I, mm. Oh, Paul,
4: it's 2020. (laughs) There could be very many more surprises coming our way. September surprise, October surprise.
3: September and a half. (laughs) There may be several. Lindsay, what do you think? I mean, do you think Trump can pull off another victory?
4: I don't think we can count anything out at this point because there are so many things about how this election will take place that uh, we don't know. We've never had voting in a pandemic. We have never seen a a president push back on mail-in votes and voting the way that we've seen And there's also this sense from journalists and pollsters they don't want to get it wrong again, so everyone is hedging their bets. And what will that do to democratic motivation? Will it turn out in such a force that there is an an overcorrection here because nobody is taking anything for granted? So it all just makes for a really unpredictable and really volatile uh, lead-up to the election.
5: Facetious comment number two, I will be surprised if turnout is less than 100%. Yeah. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But if there was ever an election in America where I think Americans on both sides of the spectrum know that they have to get out and vote, A, because he's our guy, or B, because we want him out, mm-hmm. and indeed, uh, th- that is the ballot box question, right? It is Trump, thumbs up or thumbs down. I don't, I don't think people are going to say, Joe Biden inspires me to get out and vote. Democrats and people who will go vote for Biden, what inspires them to get out and vote is Donald Trump, because they want to vote him out.
3: Based on what we saw at the Democratic and Republican conventions, what does that say about what the next two months might look like? What is this campaign going to look like heading heading into November? Ugly.
5: Yeah, nasty. Like <laughs> seriously, and 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 you know, <laughs> we both sighed. <laughs> it's it's I uh, you know it's it's such it's so polarized and the. The fury is, if not out in the open, just barely skin deep. And the fear of, on one side, of losing what we got, and the fear on the other side of never getting back what we had is, you can smell it in the air. It's like, even setting aside the tone of the campaign, I don't know what's going to happen election night. You know, we talk about mail-in voting, right? Mm -hmm. the, The numbers would suggest that, The majority of voters who cast their ballots by mail are going to be Democrats who wear masks and who don't want to line up at polling stations. And the minority would be people who uh, support Trump. So that raises the potential scenario of Trump winning on election night or declaring victory before all the votes are counted because so many more votes that are being mailed in are for Biden. And so Trump gets up and and stands at the podium and says, thank you. Here we go. Four more years. We've won. And then like three days later, they've opened all the mailbags and someone says, actually, Biden won. Hmm. Meanwhile, Trump's been planning the seeds for weeks and months Mm -hmm. about the rigged election and don't let them take it away from you. And it would just play out. What do you think is going to happen in this country then? It's
4: not going to be election night. It'll be election week, election month, as we wait for those ballots to be counted and the fallout. And the question is, what will happen with Trumpism going into the future? We saw evidence of uh, Donald Trump Jr. and his speech and, and others really trying to grasp onto that mantle. Even though this is very much about the man and the personality, this has created a huge rift on the the right side of the american political discussion that is not going to go away Hmm. regardless of whatever happens on election night
3: well we will watch this closely thank you both for your insight into this my pleasure
4: yeah it was fun
3: Before we go today, an update on Canada's efforts to secure COVID vaccines. Today, I can announce that the government of Canada has signed two new agreements with Novavax and
0: Johnson & Johnson to reserve millions of doses of the vaccines they're developing.
3: On Monday, Trudeau said both candidates are showing promising results, and if the vaccines are ultimately approved, the combined deals are good for up to 114 million doses. Canada has already secured millions of doses of vaccine candidates from two other U.S. companies, Pfizer and Moderna. Trudeau also announced yesterday that Canada is increasing its own capacity to make vaccines. The federal government will spend $126 million to expand a manufacturing facility in Montreal. That's all for today. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to FrontBurner.
1: On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CDC News. Also check out Front Burner on the CDC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around when After 9 returns. It's Sharon Hurd in discussion with Stephanie and Jen. From the Canadian Red Cross.
9: Residents are advised that both lanes of North and Chackle Road near Michael Road are closed today. The closure is for the installation of an important sanitary service connection. Local traffic and emergency vehicles still have access. The installation is expected to be completed by tomorrow. Motorists are asked to exercise caution around the work zone and obey all signage and traffic controllers. Once again, that's north and Chaco Road near Michael Road, closed until tomorrow.
1: Two Rivers Gallery is heading into fall with new programs for adults. On September 29th, bring in a digital headshot of your pet and design a cookie cutter in the Maker Lab. Then on November 10th, it's back to the Maker Lab to design your own jewelry using the laser cutter to create and engrave it. You can also sign up for Try It Tuesdays with a different activity each session. All programs are designed with COVID-19 protocols in place. For more information on these and other programs, go to tworiversgallery.ca, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza.
8: Canada Post reminds you to keep your dog secure. Please do not open the door during deliveries or allow your dog to approach Canada Post employees while they are out in the community. This makes it difficult to adhere to physical distancing and increases the risk of dog bites. Already this year, Canada Post personnel have experienced more than two dozen incidents with dogs in Prince George. Check out and share the video on the Canada Post Facebook page to help spread this important message.
1: Downtown Prince George is open for business. Visit the Downtown Prince George website for information about many of the businesses that are still operating with innovation and determination. Mobile security patrols have been added to provide more eyes and ears on the street during late evening hours. Follow Downtown Prince George through their website and social media to learn more about other programs and initiatives to support business and the community. Downtown Prince George, open for business. Find out more at downtownpg.com.
0: Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: As heard on Tuesday afternoon's Senior Moments program here on 93.1, here is Sharon Hurd in discussion with Stephanie and Jen from the Canadian Red Cross.
9: You know, have we had any serious uh, calls for the Red Cross in in this area this year? I don't think so. Maybe the floods. Sure, yes, absolutely. I can speak for that. Good. Uh, Mm -hmm. so So, go ahead yeah do you
10: want me to go ahead yeah okay (laughs) so um of course we've red has responded to a variety of different um floods and supported communities in terms of flood preparedness so that might look like helping people make good decisions around um you know mitigating risk to their homes. so That could be, you know, sandbags, it could be moving valuables to upper floors, it could be adjusting the gutters so that there was less, um, you know, debris around your home, those types of things related to floods. But certainly we supported the people of Grand Forks um, back in 2018 when they saw really
9: significant flooding in their community. Right. Well, you need to come out to my place in April <laughs> and stay with me because I'm on Chilaco River, and uh, this year I had a dandy, but uh, they, they told me to evacuate, but... I told the police to come and get me if they wanted me to evacuate,
10: (laughs) and they wouldn't. recommend listening to the local news as well because that will give you a good sense of sort of what the risk is in the community and what the weather conditions may may do, and in turn that may may affect your decision and or the local authorities' decision to evacuate.
9: And so, a couple of years ago, we had uh, terrible fires, and uh, I would imagine that you were really involved with the community response. Um, network and uh, the other places that would be taking people I mean that's a heck of a a thing to arrange for people coming from other cities and where are you going to put them up and what if they're sick what if they need um, doctors and that kind of thing I mean that's quite an undertaking and I don't think you get a lot of um, uh, a lot of time to prepare when these things happen they just happen
10: well, I think from a from a fires perspective, um, certainly we work with our partners. The city of Prince George, for example, um, there were many other communities, of course, that were impacted, including Indigenous communities that actually hosted individuals from other Indigenous communities. So, you know, it was really, truly, I think these situations really, truly um, give us that, that genuine sense of community and looking after one another. Um, from a Red Cross perspective, you know, our, we're always there to support um, the community or the municipality at their request. In Prince George, we have an agreement with the city uh, related to emergency social services, or sorry, emergency support services, rather, and mm-hmm. that means that we have teams of people, volunteers, who are ready and able to assist when we're activated, and so certainly in the fire response, we were absolutely activated, and we're there to provide um, reception support or support at um dispensers as needed to to support those evacuees who um, were out of their homes for several weeks
9: yeah because i would think that there's a lot of trauma there um especially the children Mm -hmm. and are they evacuated by bus or do they have their own vehicles or do you make arrangements or does the community they're coming from make those arrangements
10: in some cases, the community they're coming from will make those arrangements. Certainly, you know, to, to hear you say that there's trauma, absolutely there is for everyone involved. And I think that's one of the things from a Red Cross perspective we're particularly mindful of. And not mm-hmm. just, you know, in that moment. Um, you know, it's obviously an extremely stressful time to have to leave your home and um, distressing maybe to, to lose your employment as well. We mm-hmm. certainly saw that after 2017 fires and a 2018 fires. And for some people, we saw evacuations year after year after year. And that can also be kind of um, amplify that feeling of that helplessness or the fear. And so that is absolutely something we're really mindful of. We actually have a special team of people who work with us um, in our emergency management team, and they're called safety and well-being volunteers. And part of their role is really to kind of have that check-in with individuals who might be in distress, and we would provide referrals within the community if that was appropriate, um, if they needed additional support, for example. But most people, when they evacuate, often will take their own vehicle and will make mm-hmm. their way to wherever the reception center is, or they might have an opportunity to go stay with friends and family who might be, you know, kind of out of the danger zone, but does don't necessarily mean that they have to go to, um, you know, altogether a different community.
9: The other thing I was thinking of as you were talking was if a child got separated from their family, um, that would be something that would be really frightening for that child. And I suppose um, you would have people who would be able to track down their parents.
10: Absolutely. I mean, I don't know of of an instance of that occurring in in 2017 or or 2018. Um, We did have some children who during the Fort McMurray fires were separated from their families. However, of course, they were well cared for uh, mm-hmm. at the time. For example, we had a principal who was on a bus and, mm-hmm. and made sure that those students got to safety and, and allow, you know, were able to um, you know, connect them back to their families. So I'm not aware of any instances in British Columbia of that occurring. Mm-hmm. But of course, as you can imagine, Fort McMurray was just an extreme situation and it required quick thinking. And Ultimately, mm-hmm. those, those kids were safe.
9: Well, and there is there still fires down in uh, Kelowna in that area still going on? We are still seeing. There are three
10: fires in note currently in British Columbia, and those um, are available on the BC Wildfire website, um, primarily in southeastern BC this mm-hmm. year. We did have um, some communities that were on evacuation alert or on evacuation order, um, most of those have now been rescinded, and so the fires are burning, you know, near to community. But at this point, um, you know, significant evacuations are not required. Although that always can
9: change. That's good news, though, because uh, uh, there's such tragedies, and and I don't think that those of us who aren't involved i mean the last couple of years that we had those fires i was really nervous about it and the smoke that came into my house and on my house and and on everything outside on my lawn furniture and everything it's just you can't get that off and and that's just me sitting there at the at the edge of the fire i don't i'm not my house wasn't in danger or anything like that. But it really does make you think about the people that are so close to it Mm -hmm. and how frightening that is. And I'm glad that you, um, for sure you would know all about the trauma, but I don't think a lot of people think about the trauma on children and adults. I mean, Mm -hmm. what do you think you would do if you lost absolutely everything? I mean, that would be, (laughs) well... I don't even want to go there. Devastating. Yeah, it would be devastating. And so, um, and with the flooding, then you were saying that you would have sandbags and, and uh, help people get out of their place and stuff like that. And then the other thing I was, um, because I had a knee replacement, I went to the Red Cross here in town and, and didn't realize until I had a knee replacement that you had uh, lending of equipment here in town.
10: Yes, so Stephanie is really in a great position to, to speak to that program.
9: Mm-hmm.
10: Yeah, so I'm glad that we were able to help you. That's fantastic
7: news. Mm-hmm. Our Health Equipment Loan Program has actually been around for over 50 years. Wow. Um, and does provide medical equipment on a short-term basis by referral from a healthcare professional to assist those recovering from injury or illness. Mm-hmm. And we often hear that people don't know about the program until
9: they need it. Yeah. You're a perfect example of that. Yes, yeah. And so um, I was offered even a, a seat for the toilet that or some kind of a handle thing that mm. would help me to get up from the toilet. Um, and and uh, I didn't take it, but I thought, well, isn't that a wonderful invention? Because, you you know, using your knees to get up off the toilet, a lot of people just wouldn't be able to do it Mm -hmm. and so I got uh, crutches and a walker I think that was the two things that I got but there was quite a few things to help me if I needed it and uh, there was no cost you know you just sign uh, your name and bring it back when you're done with it
7: Yeah, we do have, we have a variety of mobility equipment, Mm bathing equipment and bathroom aids. um, Again, uh, available from a referral from a healthcare professional. And the program is a short-term program. So it's up for, it's up uh, available for loan for up to six months. And it's intended to just get somebody over sort of a short-term illness or recovery from surgery, Mm -hmm. um, which the six months is is usually sufficient to get them uh, over their recovery, and then they don't have to invest in the equipment for themselves.
9: Now, you you do have things like um, those lifts uh, that uh, you can lend people.
7: Yes, yeah, we do have some more advanced equipment as well. We do have uh, fully electric hospital beds and uh, a variety of lift systems. And again, those are all um, available through a referral from a healthcare provider. And those. Larger pieces of equipment, we have a team of trained technicians that deliver it and install it and set it up for the clients in their home.
9: And so, um, I mean, that's quite big heavy equipment yes. you know i think it's wonderful that you're able to lend that out and you have those um, beds that will help people to rehabilitate and, and uh, help the the people who are taking care of them as well and uh, that is something that i didn't realize that you were able to do um, one of the things that i think about when i think of the red cross is about donating blood and we don't do that anymore in prince George do we we don't actually do that. Um,
10: community across has been has not um, had a blood program in, in many um, decades at this, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we, you know, really we're focused now on sort of the health and wellness of things, and that's where the Health Equipment Loan Program comes in and providing those support to individuals who are recovering from illness and surgery. Of course, disaster response, like we talked about, or sometimes we call that emergency response, mm-hmm. um, and so that's the wildfires and floods that we that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And other investments, maybe you, know, you talked a little bit about the trauma here mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, from a mental health perspective, Yes. and one of the areas that we really invested in recognizing that um, you know, that mental health toll that things like wildfires or floods or, in some cases, multiple evacuations takes in community, um, we really invested in community assets, for example, in the interior. So mm-hmm. those communities that, like Williams Lake, for example, that were really hard hit mm-hmm. during the 2017 and 2018 wildfires, um, we're really investing in those community support. So what we're really seeing is individuals and families and particularly children who are finding different ways to get outside and are finding different ways to cope with, you know, that smell of smoke. You spoke about mm-hmm. that, you know, having the smell of smoke in the air. But mm-hmm. some people, that's a trigger that takes them back to a place that maybe wasn't very positive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these mental health supports are in their community. They're able to access them um, readily and really is, um, you know, one of the ways that Red Cross is making a difference in that supposed disaster
1: scenario. From Tuesday afternoon's Senior Moments program, that is part one of the discussion Sharon Hurd had with Stephanie and Jen from the Canadian Red Cross, we'll have part two of that uh, interview in a moment here on After 9. As part of the city's budget, Council has approved important service enhancements aimed at increasing community health, well-being and safety. Particularly in the downtown. Six areas are being enhanced police services, bylaw services, contracted security, funding for homeless service hubs, improved parkade lighting, security and cleaning, and additional staff and equipment in public works. More information on the city's service enhancements to improve health and safety for all is available through the news link at princegeorge.ca.
8: The Government of Canada has started the gradual resumption of some passport services in Canada. Passports can now be applied for by mail. Those in immediate need of a passport can request an in-person appointment. Those without current travel plans are asked to wait before applying for a passport. Processing times are expected to be longer than normal due to high demand and current protocols taken to keep Government of Canada employees safe. For more information, visit Canada.ca or follow Passport Canada on Facebook or Twitter.
1: The City of Prince George has been awarded a $48,000 gift by the Canadian Medical Association Foundation. The money enables the city to support efforts to safeguard the health and well-being of our most at-risk residents by providing access to clean and safe public washrooms in the downtown. In line with public health recommendations, the washrooms undergo daily cleaning and regular sanitization of common areas. For more information on the city's continuing effort to help the less fortunate in our downtown, visit princegeorge.ca.
6: Forecast from Environment Canada, showers today, wind from the south at 20 and a high of 17. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 10. For Friday, a mix of sun and cloud, wind becoming southwest 20 in the afternoon, a high of 21 with a high UV index.
0: This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFISFM.
1: And now the second half of Sharon Hurd's discussion with Jen and Stephanie from the Canadian Red Cross.
9: Here in town, Stephanie, are you offering first-aid training? So we uh, have first-aid training through authorized providers, so
7: it's not uh, direct delivery from our office here on 6th Avenue, but we do have training partners. Uh, that deliver the first aid program on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And if uh, people just go to the website, the www.redcross.ca, mm-hmm. you'll find a list of the authorized providers in our area for depending on which type of first aid you're looking for.
9: The other thing that I noticed on the website was something that really um, really touched me, was drowning is silent. And is that a... Um, do you do a, a, a presentation about... Uh, Safety around swimming pools and things like that?
10: We, we definitely do. And certainly, unfortunately, um, due to COVID, with people trying to kind of get outside and be physically distant, we have seen more drownings in British Columbia this year. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have always had a water safety program. And, and you know, ensuring that, um, you know, families and, and particularly children are well supervised. And what that means is keeping children within arm's length. Um, you know, that seems mm-hmm. like sort of maybe a no-brainer, but as kids get a little bit older, sometimes we think that they can swim, um, you know, better than, they can, better than um, maybe they're able. And we're also seeing with people going in lakes and rivers, um, you know, it's high water mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. very fast-moving water, yeah. and sometimes individuals, particularly adults, young adults, um, tend to us- underestimate how quickly that water is moving. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we're teaching from a water safety perspective is really knowing the risk of the, of the body of water that you're going in, so whether it's a lake or a river or, or the ocean if you mm-hmm. live on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, of course, really actively supervising children. So putting the phone down, keeping them within arm's length, um, and ensuring that they have taken swimming lessons. So Red Cross actually has a, a complete um, swimming program that is offered at most municipal
9: and of course in partnership with our with our community partners I know my my nephew uh, was seven and he and his friend were playing in his friend's pool and his friend drowned and he they were just left alone and I have no idea what happened I mean there were seven and eight year old boys and they were just playing and and uh, Sean tried to save his friend. And he has never gotten over it. You know, that what they call survivor guilt. Mm-hmm. That's a really unfortunate
10: situation. And, and unfortunately, it isn't a unique situation. Mm-hmm. So that act supervision I don't want to play swing here because certainly I don't know the circumstances. But, yeah. um, you know, drowning can happen very quickly and it can happen in very little water. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we think, you know, they can touch or they can stand. You know, maybe it's only waist way steep, Mm-hmm. Um, it, it,
9: you know, drowning can still happen in those in those kinds of circumstances, and it happens very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it did. And uh, you know, he's an adult, well, young adult now, but his life will never be the same because of it. And so, I really wanted to talk about that today because of that. What happened to him, and how we think that the kids are okay playing in the, you know, playing in the puddles and stuff, and they're not. Mm-hmm. They, they
10: have to really, be. That active supervision is so, so important. And it means, you know, for the adults, you know, with my daughter, she's nine. Mm-hmm. It means for me putting my phone down. It means, yeah. you know, being in the pool, you know, with her. Mm-hmm. Um, if she's there with her friends, it means being really close by. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that she probably, you know, and, and when we go in a lake or a river, um, you know, outside of a swimming pool, she wears a personal flotation device. She wears a PFD. Good. And, you know, while that maybe isn't cool, yeah. I know that <laughs> she can safe, more safely be rescued. Yeah.
9: Um,
10: yeah. We had a situation a couple of weeks ago on the coast where uh, a young girl was on a, a floaty and the river current the current was quite strong and she was pulled out and it, requ- it required rescues to be mobilized. Yeah. Fortunately, she was safe with a very good outcome, but that isn't always the case. So wearing personal flotation device ensuring kids are within arm's length, really being mindful and having that active watching mm-hmm. and keeping your eyes on the water is so, so important.
9: Well, I live on the Chilaco, and it really moves. And uh, I wouldn't want to see a child fall out into that current, you know. And and uh, so, so thank you for um, talking about this, because it is a scary subject, but we need to talk about scary things. And uh, and now um, with COVID, this is a whole new um, experience for all of us. And so, Red Cross must be really um, having to. Well, we well we're, we're getting more and more every day in BC, like a hundred a day or something like that. No, we
10: Not are seeing that rise in in in. Um in in um, COVID-confirmed cases, Mm -hmm. but that isn't unique. And I think, you know, as Dr. Henry has said, um, you know, that on some level is to be expected because we are doing more things. But having said that, you know, the role from a Red Cross perspective, certainly we've mobilized and provided support to Canadians who are returning home. So, for example, very early in the year when we had some individuals that were on cruise ships that were stranded. Um, Those individuals were brought Mm -hmm. back to Canada, and the Canadian Red Cross provided support to those folks just to make sure they had the the essentials while they they quarantined. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now we're in a situation where we were providing support to long-term care, for example, in Quebec, um, where they needed that surge capacity. And the Canadian Red Cross is, is is an expert in infection control protocols. And doing that kind of training we've experienced for example um with ebola oh yes in, in, in the um in uh, democratic republic of the Congress, for example and in kenya and in Sierra and leone and so we applied what we've learned um to the covid pandemic and so we actually have um epidemic and prevention control protocols and training that are available to organizations and to individuals and then of course Um, You know, we've always had infection control protocols, for example, in our health equipment loan program. So COVID isn't unique. It has changed a little bit in the way that we deliver that service. And Mm -hmm. so maybe I'll just ask Steph to share, Mm -hmm. you know, what's happening in Prince George and what people who might be coming in to pick up equipment, what they can expect at the Red Cross.
9: Good.
7: Sure. Thanks, Jen. So we, since the start of COVID, we have been continuing to provide service. Um, You know, we knew that was really important that people could still get equipment, uh, when it was needed, mm-hmm. and but we have been working with our doors locked just to ensure the safety of our clients and our team, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, what we're doing is we are encouraging people to make an appointment, so just to give us a call and make an appointment, make sure that we have a copy of the referral, and then we can prep their equipment ahead of time and have it all ready for them just to do a curbside pickup, mm-hmm. And the same thing when we're when they're returning equipment, uh, if they know they're going to return it, they could just give us a quick call and let us know uh, that they're going to bring it back. Uh, but either way, if they're not able to phone and make an appointment, or if they're just on the on the fly, they can certainly just come, knock on the glass, mm-hmm. and uh, a volunteer will will speak with them, and then we'll do uh, the handover of equipment with six foot distancing in place, and to make sure that it's it is safe and that we're not um, you know we're we're not getting too close to them.
9: So, have we? Have you had to do um, one of the um, the field hospital? Have you had to do that in BC? We we were asked by the provincial government, um, and with our
10: with our colleagues at the Vanco- at Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. Uh, to set up or mobilize what would be, what we would typically call a field hospital. So these are, um, it's a modular unit, it's quite large, and it comes in a variety of different pieces. And we have in the past mobilized that to deploy globally mm-hmm. uh, 25 times. So we've mobilized different field hospitals to different locations. Most recently it was in Mozambique, mm-hmm. and uh, I had the opportunity to be there to see that last fall. Um, however, in this context, it was about, providing a non-COVID-positive space that if we needed that surge capacity, that, that it was available in the lower Mainland, which was at the time where we were seeing the greatest number of cases. Mm-hmm. So that facility remains set up, and it remains on a 48-hour activation, which would be identified by um, either the Ministry of Health, whether Dr. Henry or through Vancouver Coastal Health. They will make the decision um, if and when the time comes to activate that, that space, that it is ready to go. And it is currently at the Vancouver. It's called the Vancouver Coastal Health Center, and it's at the Vancouver Convention Center.
9: Oh, now uh, what is this seven-person technical team that you have? So is we had a team of individuals who who are experts
10: in infection control and in and who are experts in setting up our field hospital. So typically, those we call the international delegates, and typically those would be the individuals who would go to an intran- a major international response and assist in setting up our field hospital. Okay. So so we, they work with our partners. So in this case, of course, it was Vancouver Coastal Health, the Mobile Medical Unit in BC, and of course the Ministry of Health here in, in British Columbia. And together they devised a plan, set up, mobilized equipment, um, mobilized individuals. But our Red Cross team provided leadership to the setup of that of that site.
9: Pretty pretty. Um Amazing, isn't it? How it's pretty
10: awesome to, y- to be able to provide that support at home. Like we have this expertise, and usually, you know, Canadians, or British Columbians don't always have the opportunity to see it firsthand. So mm-hmm. it was, it was, um, it was, it was great to be able to, to know that we were here and able to provide that support here
9: at home. Absolutely. I um, I was thinking uh, with the homeless. I wonder why they can't set up those kind of field hospital things for the homeless. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> that's another It's
10: really out of our scope yeah. at this point. Yeah. So yeah. for us, it was really about um, you know, mobilizing support at the, request of, at the request of our partners.
9: Now, you um, take volunteers, do you? We sure Absolutely. do. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they just have to drop in um, to the office stuff, or I guess they can go on the, the website and get a volunteer form to fill out.
7: They certainly can, Sharon. But we we do like we like to give a, a personal welcome here in Prince George, mm-hmm. and we do encourage people just to give us a call. Mm-hmm. Um, they can speak with Mike. Uh, who is Mm -hmm. taking care of those calls. And uh, we just want them to give us a call. We can answer any questions that they have. We can certainly provide them more information about the opportunities that we have. Mm -hmm. Specifically with our health equipment loan program right now, we have a couple of opportunities, Uh, one of them being with our client service team. Mm -hmm. So that would be, um, you you know, you you met with some of our wonderful volunteers when you came in to get your equipment. I did, yeah. They're, they're meeting with the public, they're providing them the equipment, they're providing them the instruction sheets for the equipment and getting them on their way. And then we also have opportunities with our equipment reprocessing team as well. Mm-hmm. So, as you can imagine, in order to get that equipment ready for loan, we have to make sure that it is uh, well cleaned, mm-hmm. uh, sterilized, and in good repair inspected and, and any repairs done. So, mm-hmm. we have uh, a team that works hard in the back as well. So, if we have some folks on air that are you know handy with tools or like to tinker that kind of thing we can certainly uh provide an opportunity for them
9: oh that's a good thing yeah
7: yeah so we of course provide full training and orientation Mm -hmm. um if they do want to go on to the website they can certainly do that or um if they just want to have a like i said a chat with mike just to see if this is an opportunity for them Mm -hmm. they can certainly just give him a
9: call down at the office here good and you also take uh, donations now is it uh, money clothing Um, what do you take
7: so, well, so, sorry, specifically that, for the Health Equipment Loan Program, if if there is generally used medical equipment that somebody has purchased or has been in their family, mm-hmm. uh, we can certainly have a look at that and see if that's something that we can add into uh, our equipment loan program. Um, but the best way to help the Red Cross is always through monetary donations. Yes. And then we're able to turn that into uh, where it's uh, what's needed most and where it's needed most.
1: As first heard Tuesday afternoon on our Senior Moments program, that is Sharon Heard in discussion with Stephanie and
6: Jen from the Canadian Red Cross. Back to wrap in a moment here on After Nine. One of the many services suspended due to COVID-19 has now returned. Drop-off customer recycling is once again available at London Drugs. Beverage containers, soft plastics, flexible plastics, and styrofoam are once again returnable to London Drugs. Local outlets may have restrictions on daily customer quantities and may have to temporarily stop taking returns from time to time. But recycling is back at London Drugs. For more information about the London Drugs Sustainability initiatives and what can be recycled at stores, visit greendeal.ca.
1: Life Sciences BC is proud to present the Investor Summit 2020 online. The Investor Summit brings together stakeholders in the healthcare innovation ecosystem for an exciting day of company pitches. Companies wanting to present their product have until September 15th to apply. Life Sciences BC members can virtually attend the summit free of charge. The cost is $250 for non-members. Full details are available online at lifesciencesbc.ca. The Life Sciences BC Investor Summit 2020, November second and third at life sciences
0: you're listening to after nine on prince george's community station 93.1 cfis FM.
1: that'll do it for today's program tomorrow it's the friday edition which means we'll start with front burner from cbc news followed by the friday panel and some hot topics right here on 93.1
0: after Nine is a daily presentation of CFISFM. fm After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of The Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca.
3: You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.